0: Good evening, church family. Whoa, whoa, whoa! What's wrong, guys? Good evening. It's the Lord's day. We've just sung to the Lord. We should be happy and joyful. I know it's me, but come on, guys. What a great joy it is to uh, be together and end off the Lord's day together and. Do you trust that the Lord will encourage us and ex- ex- exhort us in his word? If you do have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, verse 35, and we'll be reading uh, till the end of chapter 5. Uh, you'll notice that this portion uh, naturally goes together as Mark focuses upon the miracles of Jesus. Uh, in the previous section, he records to us four of Jesus' parables, and he follows that up with four miracles. And, and these miracles are meant to encourage us and exhort us to trust in the Lord, to find our strength in his might and his mercy, ultimately. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me and read along uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to the end of chapter 5. This is God's word. Let's hear it. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed, by, who had been possessed by, with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he said, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has done had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis uh, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians And had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard uh, the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the rulers house some some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went went in where the child was, taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Only so far in the reading of God's word. May you reform our lives to its truth. uh, Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to rejoice in you this evening. We want to thank you for the Lord's Day and the blessing thereof and the joy of meeting with your people and fellowshipping with one another. And especially we want to thank you for the joy of singing and raising our voices and our heart in praise. And perhaps above even that, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the joy of having your word and of seeing who you are, who your son is, what he is able to do. And dear Lord, as we think about your word, as we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, we do ask that you would be merciful to us that you'd be merciful to us because we come before you and we take our refuge in you. In the midst of difficulties and trials all around us, we come to hide under the shadow of your wings to take refuge and ask that you would remove the storms of destruction all around us. And we call out to you even this evening as the most high God and we ask that you'd fulfill your purposes in us so that you would be praised and honored, that your name would be magnified in us even as we live in this world. We ask this for the sake of your glory and your honor, in Christ's name, amen. Uh, So we've had a blessed weekend as the elders had a retreat and we had a great time of encouragement as we prayed for one another, prayed for the church and discussed Uh, many aspects of the church. But our first session was a bit difficult. We uh, thought about and reflected upon uh, the state of our community and our country and man, was it a bummer. Uh, Whether it is the economy or politics or society, whether it's ESCOM or the interest rate or whatever it is, the crime, this world, we concluded, is a mess, this world, to say it better yet, is fallen, surely we see it all around us, we, we, wherever we turn we see danger, we see natural disasters, we see freak accidents, we see collapsing economies, we see dangers all around and it causes anxiety and fear and frustration and distress, Wherever we see, wherever we turn, we even see demonic oppression. We might not see demonic possession that much these days. It's there, believe me. Yet we see its influence. Whether it's in drug abuse or alcoholism or corrupt governments or false religion or pornography, we see demonic oppression that enslaves and harms and threatens Wherever we turn, we see disease. We see cancer uh, causing strife and grief in families. We see the scourge of HIV/AIDS in our continent. We see global viruses. Wherever we turn, we see diseases that steal away our strength and rob us of our joy. And even wherever we turn, we see death, whether through violence violent crime, whether through sickness or accidents or danger or old age. Wherever we see, we see death all about throwing us into headlong grief. Surely there's no question about it. We live in a world that's a mess. We live in a world that's fallen, a world that's been ravaged by sin and Satan. And realize, dear friend, whether you like it or not, in this fallen world, in and of yourself, you are helpless. Whether you like it or not, we are absolutely helpless in the situation. I think that's why so many people pursue immigration or semigration, because they're looking for some kind of hope in our hopelessness. But realize in this hopelessness, we are helpless. Tell me, who here by their strength? Who here by their planning? Who here by their money? Who here by all their solar panels? Who here by their planning to immigrate? Who here can guarantee that their life will not be touched by sin and Satan and dangers and demonic influences and disease and death? If you're honest with yourself, you cannot stop your life from being ravaged by sin and Satan. You cannot protect yourself or your family from danger, disease, or death. If we are honest with ourselves, in and of ourselves, we are helpless. Unless, of course, you have Jesus. Unless, of course, you have Jesus who in and of himself is mighty to save, as we sang earlier. That's what this passage is is trying to communicate to us. That's what's meant to to push upon our hearts that apart from Christ, we are hopeless. Just look at the people that Jesus engages here. They're, They're helpless, they're hopeless, Look at chapter 4, verse 38. The disciples are in in the thick of a storm. Wave after wave is crashing upon them. This boat is about to sink and they're on the verge of perishing, they say. I think of the demon-possessed man in chapter 5, verse 6. He's tormented. His life is ruined. He's isolated among the dead in the tombs. He is cutting himself to pieces because no one is able to restrain him and subdue him. I think of the woman in chapter 5 verse 26. We find that she has this incurable discharge. And no matter what, who she sees, no matter what she spends, we're told that it just gets worse for her. Or consider Jairus, chapter five, twenty-three. We are told that he's the ruler of the synagogue, which means in all prob- probability he's a Pharisee. And up until this point, Mark has told us the Pharisees are the enemies of Christ. Yet here's this man so desperate that he goes to his enemy for help. Why? Because his daughter is at the point of death, even we see in verse 35 that she is dead. All these people, we find in these people, we find the fact that we live in a fallen world and these people, like ourselves, find themselves helpless in and of themselves. That is until they meet Jesus. And that's the obvious point that Mark wants us to see, that Jesus is mighty to save. And what a comfort that ought to be That he is a mighty savior who has authority to save and deliver and redeem. And not only a a mighty savior, but a merciful savior. How so? Well, he's a savior who is willing, he's a savior who turns to the helpless and shows mercy. What, what, what a wonderful picture we have here of Jesus. He is almighty in his ability and he's all merciful in his affections, even to those who are helpless. Now, when we read of miracles and Jesus' miracles in the Gospels, uh, we need to read it in light of 1 John 3, 8. Uh, there John says, the, Son, uh, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Did you hear that? When Satan plunged this world into sin and ruin, when he led the effects of sin into this world, which is danger and disease and and death, Jesus, in loving mercy, enters into our world to destroy Satan. The, The son of God becomes the son of Eve to crush that serpent's head. What mercy that the Son of the Most High God would see us in our helplessness and give himself to come mightily save us. You see Mark is saying in this passage, here dear reader, here dear friend, here is the help you want and here is the hope your soul needs. A, a savior who indeed is mighty to save. I want you to see four things and it's quite easy to see how this, this passage breaks down but four things I want you to see. Uh, first thing is this, that Jesus is mighty to save from danger, uh, Jesus is mighty to save from danger. At the end of chapter 4 we find that the disciples are on a, a, a small boat in a very large storm And quite naturally, the disciples are fearful. This boat is about to sink. It's just taking in water. Yet quite unnaturally, we see in the midst of the storm, Jesus sleeping silently. The picture we're meant to actually see from Mark here is that Jesus is so tired. He's so physically exhausted by his teaching and by his ministry that in the midst of a violent storm, He's fast asleep and this adds effect to the point Mark wants to make Jesus even when physically exhausted, is able with a word to calm the storm. He's able with a word to deliver from this disaster. He's able to bring rest and peace from chaos. See, in the same way that Jesus rebuked the demons in Mark chapter one, so too he he rebukes the sea. And the point is, Jesus is the strong man. He is the strong man who, who overcomes violent forces. And Mark wants us to see that this Jesus is mighty to save. This Jesus is the one to whom you must call upon in your danger. But but realize you you need to call upon him in faith. Notice how the disciples call on Jesus in their distress, in their fear. They call upon him, yes, but notice how they call upon him. They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They call upon him with, with sarcasm, actually. They interpret him as indifferent. They almost seem to be rebuking him in their unbelief. Which makes sense of his response to them. Why are you so afraid? Why, why have you still no faith? Now, I, I don't think Jesus is, is rebuking them in a harsh manner here. Uh, I think he's actually being quite gentle with them. He, he, he's trying to be gentle with them. He's, he's trying to build up their faith. See, these disciples have, have been under Jesus' teaching. They've seen him do great works. They have, in to some degree, a level of faith, yet that faith hasn't come to the place yet where trusts. Yes, perhaps there's a hidden knowledge and some kind of a sense. but there's no trust. Trust in the God who cares. Trust in the God who isn't indifferent. Trust in the God who actually allows the storms so that we can trust him, so that we can find him faithful. Uh, uh, this passage and this incident, I believe, is echoing Psalm 107. Uh, listen to what the psalmist says: Psalm 107, verse 23 to 32. It says, There's some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on great water. On w- great waters, they they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep." For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress, he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed, then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works of the children of man, Let them exalt him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. The point that the psalmist is trying to make is this God raises the storm. God raises the storm and when people fear and become anxious, he would have them turn to him. And more than that, not just turn to him to be saved, but turn to him so that as he delivers them, they would see and rejoice that he is steadfast in his love, that he is faithful. And, and, and if this is true, if this is how our God works, he, he raises the storm so that we turn to him in it, shouldn't this change the way we see our danger? Shouldn't this change the way we we see the storms of life and the mess that's around us? It's something I'm trying to make sense of and press in on my own heart. It's difficult, this isn't easy, but but something I'm trying to see is this, that, that storms are an opportunity. Uh, The mess around us is an opportunity. They provide the opportunity to trust God. An opportunity for Him to reveal again His steadfast love. Uh, Dear friends, how often do we not emulate these disciples? How often do we not question God because we think He's indifferent? We question Him thinking that He doesn't care. And the result is we don't see his love, we don't rejoice in his steadfast love because we quite frankly haven't called upon him and we haven't trusted him. See, God allows the storms so that we would trust in him. These are an opportunity for us to place our faith in him and trust in him so that he would do what he loves doing, showing himself faithful and steadfast. But not even here. even though these disciples doubt like we often doubt, uh, Jesus is still merciful and kind with them. That, that's the first thing I want you to see this, this evening. Jesus is mighty to save from danger. The second thing, he is mighty to save from demons. Uh, you've seen the first 20 verses of chapter 5. We see Jesus' authority again over the demonic. And we've seen this in Mark chapter 1. Yet we need to see that this account of this demoniac is, is closely tied to the calming of the storm. And there are a few reasons why. Firstly, after the storm, what do the disciples ask? They ask, who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Well, the man with a demon or demons answers that question in verse five, verse seven. He recognizes that this is the son of the most high God. This is why he can calm the storm. Realize Mark here wants us to see the absolute divinity of Christ. Realize, as we saw in Psalm 107, it's God who raises the storm and it's God who stills the storm. It's something God alone does. Yet Jesus here calms the storm. He he does that which belongs to the divine because he is the divine. He's the Son of God who shares the being of God, the eternally begotten Son who is one with the Father. And Mark wants us to see that the one who is mighty to save is the Son of the Most High God. Yuri is one you must trust, Yuri is the one you must look to. So that's the first link between these two. The second one is, previously Jesus calms the the storm, the violent storm outside the boat. Well, here we see how Jesus calms the violent storm within this man. Once tormented by thousands of demons that like waves crashed upon his heart, oppressing. Now we see this man in verse 15 sitting in his right mind, quietly with Jesus. Jesus. See, we're meant to see that Jesus is the prince of peace, not merely when it comes to the storms, but especially when it comes to souls. Here is one who who brings joy, good news to the poor. Here is one who, who binds up the brokenhearted. Here is one who proclaims liberty to captives. One who opens the prison to those who are bound. Again, what good news this ought to be for us. Uh, To be sure, we don't see that many demonic possessions today that's there. Don't mistake that. But that doesn't mean that the influence of Satan and, and his demons isn't evident all around us. We see it in false philosophies that, that corrupt hearts and lives. We, we see it in addictions that, that enslave both body and soul. We see it in evil and violent people who, who murder and destroy and kill. Now remember what Paul warns us in Ephesians 6:12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Realize dear friend, you are in a spiritual fight. You're in a spiritual fight, recognize that. Uh, don't be like these men from the Gazarene town who, who see Jesus, who are afraid of Jesus, yet asking and begging him to leave. Uh, they, they ask him to leave because they're more concerned about their prosperity, their state of their things, their money than the state of their souls. Realize you're in a spiritual fight. On your back is a bullseye because you have an enemy, an adversary who wants you down. You have an adversary that prowls around like a roaring lion. He's seeking to devour you, he's seeking to take hold of you, he's seeking to crash upon your soul. But take heart. Jesus is a greater lion. Jesus is the son of the most high God. Jesus is the one who calms the storm and calms a a, a raging soul in this man. Jesus is the one who causes demons to, to tremble. And it's this Jesus who is able to save and deliver. We need more than a good moral teacher. We need more than a a moral example. We need more than an enlightened prophet. We we need more than just a, 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 a compassionate friend. No, we need one who is mighty. One who has the power of God to set free. One who is able to take your enemies and wrestle them down and save your soul. We need a savior who frees and liberates. So that's what I want you to see in the second place. Jesus is mighty to save from disease. Thirdly, I want you to see that Jesus is mighty to save from disease. Uh, In Mark chapter five, verse 25 to 34, we see this woman who for 12 years suffered under this disease that no human effort could heal. In fact, Mark describes her situation quite graphically. He says that she suffered under the physicians who could couldn't help her. Even in verse 29, when he says that she's been healed of her disease, that word "disease" actually means to be whipped. It means to be scourged, scourged and lashed and tormented. And in a similar way to the demon-possessed man who was cut and tormented by those demons. This woman has been tormented by this disease. She has suffered tremendously, and not just physically, socially, uh, in, in that culture to have this kind of disease would make you a social outcast, you're unclean, you're untouchable, and, and so like this demon-possessed man, this woman was, was unclean, she was discarded. Yet just like the demon-possessed man who runs to Jesus, so too this woman breaks through protocol. She breaks through the crowd. She runs to Jesus. She wrestles away through the crowd just for a touch. Just want to touch Christ. Now her faith might be weak. It might even be superstitious. But it's a faith that trusts in Jesus to save It's a faith that recognizes that in the depths of my despair, in my helplessness, I need someone. I need a savior and here is one and so it gives itself to seek and touch and be healed. She she displays a faith that trusts Jesus' abilities to save, a faith that trusts Jesus to be mighty to save. And I think her story is placed here to to teach us that this is the kind of faith in Jesus' might. This is the kind of faith that saves. Faith that sees that just a touch from Jesus is enough. Just a touch from Him is is enough to heal and to make whole. Listen to JC Ryle on this passage. He says, one touch of real faith can do more for the soul than a hundred self-imposed austerities. One look at Jesus is more effective than years of sackcloth and ashes. May we never forget this to our dying day. Personal application to Christ is the real secret of peace with God. I wonder how much we lack peace. I wonder how much the fact that we lack peace is a result of us lacking in personal application to Christ. where We come out of our own emptiness and we seek his fullness. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Philippians 4. We know it well. We quote it all the time. He says there, Philippians 4, 5 to 6, The Lord is at hand, and therefore do not be anxious about anything, but in everything let your requests be made known to God, which, and the peace of God will surpass all, did I get that wrong? And the peace of God will surpass all understanding, and will guard your heart and your mind where? In Christ Jesus. So I think the point we're meant to see is that we need to go to Christ and make this personal application to him as a personal savior. And notice how Jesus responds to it, it's quite strange as well. Jesus feels that something has happened, and so he asks them who touched him, and the disciples quite expectantly question him again. Yet we mustn't misread the situation like the disciples. Jesus isn't asking because he's ignorant. No, he's asking because he's, he's pursuing this woman now. Jesus isn't content with just healing disease. He isn't some pharmacist in the business of dispensing miracles. No, he's in the business of making disciples. And, and that's what Jesus is working towards you. He, he's drawing out this woman. He, he wants her to step out in faith. He, he wants her to, to make that public wife for her encouragement. And not just her encouragement, but, but the encouragement of others for us. To see that this is the faith that pleases Christ. Uh, look at uh, the way he speaks to her daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Yeah, don't miss Jesus here. Just look at his tenderness. Just look at his kindness, look at how merciful he is. He is mighty, yes. He makes whole, yes. Yet he does so in tenderness and kindness. And so therefore surely he is worth our faith. Surely he is worthy of following. Surely he is worthy of confessing as Lord and Savior. So I want you to see that's the third thing Uh, Jesus is mighty to save from disease. The last thing I want you to point out to you is this, that Jesus is mighty to save from death. He's mighty to save from death. In the surrounding incident surrounding this woman, uh, we find uh, that Jesus again heals from the dead. He goes to Jairus, his daughter, and he raises her from the dead, and we even see again here Jesus' authority even over death. And again, this passage is closely tied to what has come before, Uh, particularly with this unnamed woman. Both women or both characters are, are in a desperate situation. Both are hopeless apart from Christ. Both are called daughters by Jesus. In fact, Jesus displays remarkable tenderness to both. Both are tied to the number 12. This child is 12 years old and this woman for as long as this child has been alive has suffered. Yet above all, the thing that ties them together is that both are unclean. This woman has been unclean for 12 years and this girl dies and her corpse is unclean and now we get to see something of the theme in this chapter. And that is the uncleanness that we see whether it's in the man who's possessed by an unclean spirit, whether it's in this woman with an unclean disease, whether it's this girl who is made unclean by death, again and again we see uncleanness, and again and again we see how Jesus saves, how he heals, how he restores As we saw in chapter one with the leper, Jesus touches that which is unclean and instead of becoming unclean, he makes clean, he restores. Again, what mercy. This Jesus doesn't move away from the untouchable, no, he moves towards them. In in a sense, this chapter is a symbolic picture of our world We live in an unclean world. We could echo Isaiah, right? Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That's all of us. see, we live in a world tormented with unclean demons and influences, a world suffering under the unclean disease of sin and sickness, a world rank with the unclean stench of death. And the question is, what hope is there for our world? What hope is there for those suffering under the uncleanness of sin? And, and Mark says the answer is Jesus. Jesus who has power over death. Jesus who has the authority to give life. Jesus is the one who is mighty to save. I realize that the miracles of Jesus are a lesser work that's meant to point us to his greater work. The miracles are a picture of Jesus overturning the works of Satan, yes. But it's at the cross that he fully destroys Satan. It's at the cross that he conquers sin, Satan, and death. And if you're a believer, remember what Christ has done for you. He has saved you from this present evil dark age in his death and resurrection. Uh, uh, consider a few passages that, that tie this aspect to the cross. Colossians chapter two, verse 14 to 15. He says there, and you who were dead in your trespasses and, this, and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demand. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities to put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Or or consider Hebrews 2, 14 to 16. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise to partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who are through the fear of death subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, those of faith, I think that's why Paul says in Galatians 1.4 that Jesus gave himself for us sin to deliver us from the present evil age. And recognize what comfort that should be. This present evil age doesn't last. This present evil age isn't your home. It isn't the final reality. No, he delivers you from it. And surely that should comfort us. In all the mess we see around us, we know that he will deliver us. And so what should be the outcome of this? If Jesus is is mighty to save and merciful as a savior, how should we respond? I think the response should be Ephesians 6.10. I've thought about this verse for a while. Ephesians 6.10 says this, finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Dear friends, there's both an encouragement and an exhortation there. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I've been thinking about this especially in light of my own failures, my own weaknesses, my own struggles for us to really survive in this world, for us to have strength amidst all the troubles and the burdens that weigh upon us. Dear friends, we need to be strong in the Lord, not in ourselves, not in our plans, not in our ideas. We need to be strong in the Lord. Think of what Jesus says in John 15, verse five, apart from me, you can do nothing. See, we are weakened by our very nature as creatures. We are weakened by our sinful nature. We are weakened by the evil forces that oppose us. We are weak by nature in this world that opposes us. And therefore, for us to even survive as weakened creatures, we need to turn to the Lord for strength. We need to go to the one who in and of himself is able and affectionately calling us to trust him. Now how can we be strong in the Lord? Two ways, be strong in the Lord Jesus by trusting in his might. Be strong in the Lord by trusting in his might. It's interesting to see the way that Jesus relates to the various people here. Our section starts with the disciples and ends with Jairus. And both of those groups, Jesus encourages them to believe they to say he wants them to grow in faith he, he wants them to trust in chapter 4 verse 40 Jesus asks his disciples why are you so afraid have you still no faith he's saying don't be afraid believe and that's exactly what he tells Jairus chapter 5 36 do not fear only believe see Jesus wanted them to trust him and dear friends Jesus wants you to trust him he wants you to place your life in His hands. He, he wants you to lean on Him as that secure rock. Isaiah 26.4, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. He, he wants you in your weakness to, to find your strength in Him 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace, Paul says, is sufficient, or Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. See, dear friend, in all our troubles and all our fears and all our uncertainties, God's might in Christ is meant to be our hope. I think of Abraham, when Abraham followed God's promises, he left his homeland, he went into the land of promise, into Canaan, and he was confronted with the uncertainties of the future, the uncertainties of God's promises. How did God call him and comfort him? Genesis 17:1, I am God almighty, walk before me. Those so who say, in light of all the challenges of living in this land that's filled with evil and threats and filled with uncertainty, know this, believe this, trust this, I am God Almighty. And so walk before me. Dear friends, are we sojourners in this world who walk this world as before God Almighty, who trust that he is, is able and willing. When sin and temptation and danger and evil and despair seem too strong, are you going to the son who is stronger still? All right, William Grinnell, the Puritan, wrote on this. He says, a soul persuaded of this may sing merrily, even with the sharpest thorn in the flesh. I think when we grasp this truth, no matter the difficulty, we know that we're not alone because we trust in one who is almighty. So firstly, be strong in the Lord Jesus by trusting in his might. Secondly, be strong in the Lord Jesus by speaking of his mercy. In between the disciples and Jairus on the one hand, we find two people who stand out for their faith. This woman who has an unclean disease trusted Jesus and in his tenderness, he helped her to confess her faith. And likewise, this man with his unclean spirit wanted to stay with Jesus, but Jesus tells him to go and tell others to confess his faith. Look at 519, go to your friends, he says, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So Jesus wanted them to tell others of the mercy they received. See, both of these people who evidenced faith were called to verbalize their faith to others, to to verbalize to others the object of their faith. They're called to help others see and know that in their helplessness there is mercy in a strong God. I don't think we realize how important this is. We live in a fallen and broken world. We live in a world that it's easy to be discouraged by, a world in which we lose heart and get despairing, a world in which we feel hopeless and and defeated. Yet if our God is almighty, if his might is strength for our weakness, then surely we should speak about this God. Because this God is not only mighty, he is merciful. And it's this merciful God who is mighty that is an encouragement for the saints. It's as we tell of this God and we're reminded of the one we serve that we're able to take our eyes off of this fallenness and to the God who saves. It's one thing to know that God is almighty. It's a completely different thing to know that this almighty God is for you. And if that is your belief, if that's what you hold on to, that this almighty creator is for you, I would argue that gives you fuel to survive. That this God who is mighty and merciful will not leave you behind whether you're a believer or unbeliever even, we need to speak about our merciful Savior, whether discouraged or hopeless. We need to be reminded that our God is not only mighty, but merciful, and as we speak that way, I think we encourage one another. Uh, Lamentations, you know, is a depressing book. It seems like Jeremiah wrote it in our day, perhaps. Uh, It's quite depressing, but right in the heart of it is a glimmer of hope. Jeremiah says this from verse 18. He has made my teeth ground like gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, so so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. If you're an unbeliever here tonight, know this. There is a son of the most high God who is able to save you. There's a Son of the Most High God who is able to save you from your distress and your despair and the death that He weighs on you. Believe upon the Son. Don't run away from Him for the sake of your prosperity and your peace. Don't be afraid of Him because He's merciful and calls you to Himself. But if you're a believer, you rejoice that this is your God a God who is almighty and a God who is for you. And so dear brother, dear sister, be strong in the Lord, stand in his might and his mercy. Uh, Look to the Lord Jesus Christ, if he has saved us from danger, if he has saved from danger, demons, disease and death, if he has saved us ultimately by giving himself for us on the cross, then will he not be able and willing to keep you now and strengthen you? Again, to close with William Grenall, he puts it this way: He lived and died for you, and he will live and die with you for mercy and tenderness for the mercy and tenderness of his own. May we be a people who trust the Lord, who by faith stands strong in his might and mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the Lord of glory, who has enjoyed eternal blessedness with you in eternity past, and thank you that he became a man who suffered and died for us on the cross of Calvary, and that he has ascended on high, and that he is still keeping and saving his people. And so we pray dear Lord, in the days in which we live in this present dark age, that we would have our faith and our hope set in him and him alone. May we personally appeal to him by faith daily, knowing, as I've said again and again, that he's mighty and merciful. In his name we pray. Amen.